The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor at Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to learn about the week ahead in stocks and bonds. Today's call features two guests, Barron's Deputy Editor Ben Levison and Ashok Bhatia, Deputy Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income at Newberger Berman, a New York-based money manager. Welcome, Ashok and Ben. It is a tough day for the markets, but it's always a good day on Barron's Live, and I'm glad you're here. Very glad to be here. (laughs) Terrific. So although our special guest today is a fixed income expert, I feel we have to start with a conversation about Elon Musk and Twitter, and I'm going to turn that over to Ben. Ben, Elon Musk wants out of a deal by Twitter at any price. Twitter stock is down 8% to 33 and change. It's down from a 52-week high of 73. And I am wondering how investors should think about the stock now. Is it a buy at this level on the expectation that somebody else will pick it up? Or is the stock going even lower? What are you hearing? Well, I mean, it, it's just a big mess uh, more than anything. I mean, this well said. Uh, possibility existed from the beginning. Um, people talked about it and, uh, you know, it was never really an issue of whether Elon Musk had the money or not. It's just, you know, whether he wanted to spend it, what his motives are. And I have no idea what those are. I'm not even going to try to try to get to that. Um, but what we do know at this point is that uh, it's, it is going to be a slog, you know, their Twitter is going to sue. Um, Musk will probably try to get out of having to pay a breakup fee and it's going to just continue to be a mess. I think one, thing to do is just to try to think about, you know, what could uh, happen, you know, what the different outcomes could be. I mean, a lawsuit, I guess, could be successful. I I don't actually foresee it being that way, which would mean that there's a lot of upside here. But I think the odds of that are so low that uh, betting on that is probably not the best course of action. Um, one thing uh, I've been hearing is that, you know, it's possible there's still a deal. There's always been this talk that Musk is really just uh, posturing that he wants to get a better price for Twitter. Uh, Benchmark, uh, their analyst today put out, maybe it's going to be, you know, a $37 price tag for the company um, at this point. But if you look at valuation, um, Twitter's uh, trough valuation has been around 12 times EBD, but I think it's around 16 or 17 now. Um, There it would put uh, the price down about, uh, you know, between 24 and $26. And, you know, that would imply that there's more downside still than there is upside. Um, But I do think that the more uh, the stock falls, uh, the closer it is to getting um, starting to look like an attractive buy. What a mess, as you said. We'll see how this one plays out. But thanks for that analysis. So now let's turn to a show and the the fixed income markets. Let's set the scene first in a big picture way. Is the bond bull market finally over after almost forty years? So I think um, I think the answer is probably yes, but it doesn't mean a, a bear market um, or a structural bear market is coming. And you know, just just to put this in you know in context, as you said, you know, we go back to. 
1970, late 1970s, 19, uh, early 1980s. And, you know, Treasury or government bond rates, you know, peaked in that period, you know, 15 to 21 percent type of, of yield levels. And, you know, in the COVID period and, and some other crisis periods, we've taken 10-year notes all the way sub 1 percent. And, you know, we sit today around around 3 percent. So, you know, on one hand, um, this has been such a long structural, you know, bear, uh, bull market in bonds, and it's really been driven by disinflation and central banks' ability to, to keep rates low. You know, you want to be careful saying, you know, something that long and durable is over. But, you know, our sense is that there's enough changing on the inflation front and the growth and demographic and central bank front that it's probably going to be hard to see, you know, 10-year notes in the, in the U.S. get get sub 1% again. But what's probably going to evolve is something that's a, a big range trade at what will still historically look like pretty low yield levels. Maybe it's something like 25 to 4%, 4.5% types of yields over the coming, you know, multi-years. multi, multi -years. And, and that's that's our best guess on, on what's going to, going to come about. Well, that's much below 21%, which you mentioned earlier. Yeah. And, you know, it's, um, we're, we're in a, we're in a different, different world. We're in, um, you know, so many things, whether it's demographics for the world, unionization, inflation rates, um, there's, there's probably, you know, a dozen topics that there are a dozen elements that really drove that. And a lot of those are, are quasi permanent, which, you know, gives us, gives us a reasonable amount of confidence that, going back to the, the super high inflation levels that, that got us to those yield levels, are, are it's not in the cards. So in a much nearer term view, investors are very worried about inflation. They're very worried about recession. What do you think is the bigger fear at this point? And what is your bigger fear? I think still inflation is, is the bigger fear because it's leading to this idea that um, the Fed or the ECB are, have a lot more to, to do. And I think just make a couple of quick comments. I mean, first, what's going on in the U.S. with elevated inflation, it, it's not unique to the U.S. It's happening in emerging markets. It's happening in Europe. It's even happening in Japan. So everywhere across the world pretty much is dealing with elevated in, inflation levels. The, the challenge, I think, specifically, you know, what's going on with the Fed is the Fed um, has seen its inflation expectations in the U.S. move a little higher and they're they're bringing the hammer down. Um, they want to make sure that this gets nipped in the bud and that, you know, usually the Fed would be forward looking. It would be a little bit thinking with their models about what's likely to happen with inflation over the next 12 months and growth. Um, but what the Fed is telling us is they're going to be very reactive to to the current data. And so I, the reason I say inflation is, is probably the bigger fear, because if we continue to see high inflation prints, it increases the chances that the Fed is is going to get you know, too, too tight, too aggressive, just as the economy is, is slowing. And, you know, just real quick, you know, our base case, you know, inflation is going to come down. Um, I think that's market consensus. And, you know, we, we believe it. You know, our our thought is that something like core inflation in the U.S. is going to be sub five percent by the end of the year and on a trajectory back down to three, three and a half um, pretty quickly next year. Um, so inflation is going to come down um, now, whether the Fed can navigate this with a soft landing. Um, you know, our best sense is growth. And, you know, I think we all know growth is slowing, but that we'll still avoid a recession. But pockets of the economy are going to feel like something more severe is, is happening. 
So, Ben, what do you think about this? Well, I, I agree, um, actually, that it's, you know, everything goes back to inflation. The Fed put, uh, w- you know, what it would be in play if uh, inflation wasn't an issue, if you were just worrying about uh, growth. Um, but growth seems to be, you know, okay-ish. Um, and it's those inflation numbers um, that, uh, you know, you really have to watch out for. One of the things that I was wondering, and maybe Ashok, you can answer, is that uh, you mentioned the Fed and its models. Um, I've heard some people talk about how it needs to use market-based uh, forecasts like the, the TIPS markets and what it's pricing into um, in terms of inflation. Do you think that is a better thing to look at than uh, kind of these models that the Fed has run for so long? So I, I think, uh, Ben, it, it's, a, it's really a fascinating observation. And if, if you say, what is like one thing that just kind of doesn't make sense about the bond markets and this whole narrative, it, it's really what you mentioned, inflation break-evens, or what, what is the market price inflation to be? And right now, the market price is 10-year inflation in the U.S. to be about 230 so 2.3%. And that, that's headline inflation. Even at the peak of inflation fears, that never really got above 3%. So from a market pricing, inflation market um, kind of dynamic, the bond markets never really believed or priced in for this this permanent uh, elevated inflation environment. Now, I think for the Fed, though, and this has been, you know, the Fed and and Jay Powell said this, which is, you know, we're relying less on, on our models because traditionally the Fed would model out what they think their policy will do 12 months, 24 months from now. And you know, think about a lot of dynamics and adjust policy, thinking about a a forecast. Well, Jay Powell has moved the Fed to being much more oriented around what does the data say now? And what that has led the Fed to to move around is, you know, what's most important? You know, it was at one point core inflation. Then they talked more about headline inflation and gasoline prices and now um, surveys of inflation expectations. So, what the Fed is focused on is changing. I think that's one of the reasons the bond markets have been, been pretty volatile is in some sense, we're all chasing what the Fed's sort of new new thing is. And, um, you know, but our, our sense is the Fed will settle in here and it is going to move to some sort of like, let's think about what the economy is likely to look like in 12 or 24 months. And, you know, the reason it's important, I just, you know, use housing as an example, right? We all see it. Housing is slowing. Well, it's going to take a couple months for that to show up in the data. And we think the Fed will, you know, over the next quarter or so, start to acknowledge a little bit of, you know, skate to where the puck is going, not just where it is right now. So meantime, for income investors, they're finally seeing a bit of income after a very long drought. And I understand you're also seeing inflows into fixed income funds for the first time in a while. So let's talk about that a little bit. What are you seeing out there and where do you see the best opportunities right now in the fixed income market? So, you know, you're you're absolutely right, um, you know, Lauren, which is uh, income has been low and limited in the bond markets for years. And, and I'd say what we're seeing is, is three pockets of, of interest from, from clients and, and, uh, and such. One is for, for conservative investors. Um, so investors that want sort of high quality bonds, you know, yields on these types of markets, which would be investment grade credit, government bonds, mortgages, these used to be sub 2%. Um, you know, suddenly they're four to four and a quarter. That, that suddenly is a reasonable, attractive income to a lot of clients that are looking for a conservative, um, balanced fixed income portfolio. So, so interest there. Um, the second is in a bit more of the, the, the higher income types of sectors. So something like 
you know, the U.S. high yield market, which 24 months ago was probably yielding about 4%, um, now is yielding just a little less than 9%. So investors that want to think about fixed income as not just income, but the potential for, you know, perhaps a little capital appreciation if, if markets improve and, and, you know, high single digit returns. And then the third bucket is where um, fixed income is now also offering kind of equity-like returns um, in, in some areas. And this would be more emerging markets, a little riskier credit securities. And so there we're seeing interest for, um, for clients we think are looking at the fixed income markets as offering a kind of a quasi-equity uh, substitute. I would just say I think the biggest one of these is that conservative, um, that first bucket of investors. It's by far the, the largest um, component of fixed income investors is conservative income um, types of investors. And um, there's a lot we, th we think there's going to be a lot of, of capital motion in motion globally over the coming years as these as this this area is offering um, reasonable yields. That's an interesting turn of events. Yeah, it's, um, you know, the path of getting here has been, um, you know, I think for a lot of investors, right, this is this is the worst total return year for for bonds. So, you know, as I'm sure, you know, you know, bond markets, our version of the S&P 500 down, you know, 10, 11 percent this year and previous worst year like 1994 was down, you know, under three percent. Um, but I think a lot of investors and clients are balancing, you know, yes, it's been uh, negative returns, but the yields and the forward looking return expectations have changed pretty, pretty significantly. OK, let's talk about earnings. Thank you so much for that, Ashok. Let's talk about earnings this week because the bank stocks are going to be kicking off the season in a big way. Ben, take us through the outlook for J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley, Citigroup, Wells Fargo. What will they tell us? And what will you be listening for? Well, I mean, I think the, the biggest thing is that uh, it's going to be really hard to know what to, to make of these earnings, partially because what you make of them is going to depend on whether you think the United States is heading into a recession or not. Um, I mean, people will be really paying attention to what the banks are saying. Um, I know I was reading Susan Katsky over at Credit Suisse, um, and, you know, she was saying that th th this issue is like, you know, people are going to be listening for the commentary that when J.P. Morgan reports and, you know, it's supposed to have uh, earnings of about $2.94, and that would be down from $3.78, you know, people are going to be listening for that outlook, and she expects it to be kind of... Uh, um, a, a little bit of uh, cautious optimism that uh, on the micro level, things are holding up okay. But the earnings are for all four of those banks are going to be kind of hit by the same things. Um, you know, they're going to have higher trading revenues, um, but they're going to have problems with uh, uh, asset uh, management and wealth management um, and fees in the investment bank, just because those things, you know, when you're when you're an asset manager and the value of the assets drop, you're making uh, less off of that. Uh, you have less money to make your fees off of. Um, and so, you know, JP Morgan's going to see that the trading should help offset things. Morgan Stanley might have the, the biggest headwind just because it is such a big wealth uh, manager at this point. Um, the ones that are always interesting to me are Citigroup and Wells Fargo. Um, Citigroup could be interesting because it really doesn't have that investment banking wealth management quite as much as some of the others. Um, so you do have to worry a little bit about mortgage banking, um, but it should do better on the trading side of things. And the stock is really dirt cheap now. I think it trades for about half of its tangible book value. And it's been cheap for a long time, but they are making progress on 
kind of fixing um, a lot of the uh, problems that it has had. And the other is Wells Fargo. That's another one that analysts seem to love just because it is this self-help situation. Everyone wants to know when they're going to be able to get out from this uh, consent order that has placed an asset cap on it. Um, but it has a lot of mortgage banking um, and uh, it's probably going to have less fee um, income off of its credit cards and things like that. So it uh, actually might not be as good as people think. Credit Suisse actually thinks that it's going to miss the uh, 84 cents a share it's supposed to have um, just off of these kind of headwinds, but it should do better later in the year because um, they'll do better with the higher rates will turn into better net interest income. I think you're right that tough capital markets are going to be tough for some of the banks and and for asset managers too. But let's move on and talk about PepsiCo. Companies reporting this week, the stock has actually done well this year. It's up more than 3% and uh, should provide us some insight into how consumer staples are doing. What's yeah, they, the company likely to report? They're supposed to report a profit of 82 cents a share, and that'd be up from 73 cents. So that's pretty decent growth there. Um, and, you know, I think the biggest thing it has to worry about is expectations. Uh, as you noted, it's it's really held up a lot better. Um, and so people, uh, investors are expecting the organic sales growth to be good, but it has a lot of um, just little things going on, like dollar strength could hurt uh, international um, international sales, and that, and that could be a problem too. So I, I think with this one, I'd want to be a little bit cautious um, that the, the expectations might be too high going into the number. Okay, let's move on to the airlines, and then we'll go back to fixed income. Delta is reporting on Wednesday. Flying, as we know, has been a miserable experience for travelers, and it hasn't been too pleasant for the airlines either. What is Delta likely to tell us? Uh, I mean, it's just, it's going to, I think it'll probably tell us what we already know. I mean, what's fascinating here is that the stocks just can't do well. We know that they're having a, you know, that they're, they're doing really well in terms of the, uh, their, their sales are getting, they're selling a lot of tickets. They're getting people on flights. Uh, the prices have never been higher, even if everybody is, uh, pretty miserable when they're flying, though I should say, um, my, my kids took a flight today and everything seemed to go fine. So, Hey, uh, you know, who knows what it'll turn out uh, to actually be like. But what we do have to watch is jet fuel. Um, that's one of those things that was got very high, but may be starting to pull back now. Expenses have been a problem. Um, keeping, uh, you know, workers happy. That's been uh, forcing wages up. But on the plus side, you do have international travel is starting to come back, especially now that the uh, the U.S. Uh, isn't quite as strict on the on the COVID front. Um, and so that that could provide a, a tailwind. Um, uh, one of the analysts I was reading over at City says that it, uh, it's a combination of factors that actually looks uh, like it could be a good setup for Delta and the other airlines coming through. And with the stocks down as much as they are, we can only hope so. That's for sure. I'm sure everyone in the industry feels that way. So let's swing back to the fixed income markets. I've got a few more questions for Ashok, and then I think our listeners have some as well. You invest in non-U.S. fixed income markets as well as U.S., correct? Yep, that's right. So I wanted to get your take on opportunities internationally. Where do you see some good ones and how are international fixed income markets doing? So the biggest the biggest change I think in the international markets and this, you know, the the, the big debt markets are are the European markets. Um, uh, so, you know, all the, the EU and the UK markets and then, you know, a lot of the Asian uh, Asian countries, including China, that that, that issue debt, both sovereign and, and corporate. 
So I think one of the changes that that's that's in the very early stages of developing is, you know, we've had, a, you know, the ECB, right? They've had the European Central Bank. They've had negative uh, negative overnight rates for years. Um, they've had negative, you know, bond yields for years. And what that prompted was a lot of European investors to look to markets like the U.S. or emerging markets um, to to invest in where they could at least get a positive yield. Well, one of the things that's happened is, you know, expectations for the, the European rates to, to move higher that's happened is suddenly European fixed income is, is offering reasonable yields for a European investor. Now, it's lower than the U.S., so something that's in the U.S. that might yield 4%, maybe it yields 2% in Europe. But it leads to this, this idea that we think we'll see more European investors just choosing to invest in Europe rather than being kind of forced into the U.S. or other markets because at least now you're getting a, a reasonable positive positive yield. I think the second you know comment is where the the, the probably the more interesting opportunities have developed um, have been in some of the the, the emerging markets. Um, so as, as you know, I think uh, as Ben was talking about, you know, I think it was related to, to PepsiCo with uh, with the strong dollar. Um, that's fed through into weakness in emerging markets. Um, you know, we've seen weakness over the last 12 months in, in the Chinese market, um, but it's started to, to broaden out. And some of these, say, double B or high yield types of credits in emerging markets um, going to be more volatile. But the yields there are, you know, in a lot of cases, sort of double digit yields now. And we think that's kind of selectively uh, an opportunity, um, a, an opportunity as well. And you know, last thing I'll say is I think China's China remains very important. Um, you know, Chinese fixed income have, has is now part of our indices, and it's only going to grow over the next uh, the next few years. So that's an area that that's going to be um, moving up on investor radar screens, um, you know, over the coming years for sure. And what about Japan? They they keep a tight control on yields. Are they likely to change that policy? Yeah, our our best guess is they are. And I think this is like this is a really I think an, an interesting story for later this year or next year. And you know, Japan's Japan's facing the same inflation issues that the rest of the world is. Um, you know, for and they've been in deflation for 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 decades. But, you know, like if you just look at their households now, suddenly a majority of households expect inflation, not deflation. And um, the weakness of their currency, which is, you know, front and center in the markets today, um, given they import a lot of commodities um, or all their commodities, um, you know, it's seeing pass through to inflation rates. Now, the Bank of Japan has said, you know, they're, they've effectively started a yield curve um, cap where the Bank of Japan is just buying any Japanese government bond at a 25 basis point yield. But we think over time and it's second half of this year, as inflation gets to be more um, entrenched in Japan and as the currency keeps weakening, the, the Bank of Japan will adjust that. So they'll move their target up from 25 basis points to 50 or 100 basis points. And we'll see a rise in, in Japanese um, government bond yields. And, you know, I think one of the open issues for the, again, the, the coming year or so is do the Japanese um, choose to invest more in their own market as opposed to our the global bond markets? And you know, our sense is that's not something that we'll see this year or maybe even next year, but it'll, that that's sort of on the radar screen for the first time in a long time. 
kind of a regime change of a sort. Yeah, I mean, Japan has had, you know, for 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 decades, right, zero um, percent interest rates. In some periods, it's been that's what the market has sort of priced it to be, given persistent deflation. And a bit more recently, it's been a zero percent yield or a little higher, as the Bank of Japan has, has you know, quote unquote, enforced that yield. But it's um, it's potentially a big change. We'll keep an eye on that. So I want to go to some questions that have come in. Linda has asked about I bonds. Can you tell us your thoughts on that, please, Ashok? Yeah, very, um, very attractive for um, individual investors, as I'm sure you know. You know the yields on those seven percent for um, you know for a, a government um, you know treasury risk free um, asset. Um, for a lot of clients, is you know there are a limit to you know I think it's a ten thousand dollar notional that 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 you're limited to. So for a lot of inve- institutional investors and the strategies we manage, it doesn't fit given the size limits. But I think for individuals uh, makes a lot of sense. Now the yields are going to come down. You know our our view is that inflation is coming down, so don't expect that kind of yield in our view. You know kind of permanently. But um, appropriate investment, in our view, for for a lot of a lot of clients. Nice when you can get it. Not too many seven percenters around. No, particularly without with just taking U.S. government risk. Terry wants to know about the risk of junk bond defaults rising. What do you see happening in the world of high yield? Yeah, that's a great question because one of the things is bond investors, right? When I say the high yield market yields you know, a little under 9%, um, very reasonable to ask, um, well, if I get a bunch of defaults, maybe I'm not going to get that 9%, I'll get six or seven or something like that. So our view is that defaults, um, high yield defaults are going to remain um, very low and below historical averages um, for even a recessionary period. And the, the, the couple of big reasons. So, I mean, I'm sure, you know, you all and we all see a lot of research that says, you know, in a recession, high yield default rates can go six to eight percent or something like that. And then, you know, when you, if you default, you you lose you lose, can lose money. Um, but our view is that it will be less. And the reasons are, first, that the high yield market is higher quality. So there's been a transition in the quality of companies that issue. So companies are generally right now less leveraged and less cyclical than they have been historically. And second, companies have used the cash that they raise in our bond markets to do things that are not, not quote unquote, bondholder unfriendly. It's often been about less, you know, reducing leverage, managing cash rather than, you know, mergers and acquisitions and those types of things. So I think, you know, our view is that even if we do get a recession, um, that you'll see default rates um, lower than, than maybe you'd expect and lower than historical. So that the yields that are on offer and high yield, even on a default adjusted basis, are, are attractive to us. So when you look out over the markets, what worries you most these days? Where, where, where are the so-called hidden risks? So I think, you know, I'd say we've talked about Japan. I think that's um, an intermediate term risk. I think um, I'm not sure I see anything, you know, hidden. But the two things I would just kind of quickly highlight are, you know, first, the, the Ukrainian, you know, the Ukrainian war. Um, you know, we, we, we do a lot in Europe and, you know, I'm, I'm here in the U.S. And I think our sensitivity to what's going on and the, the challenges with energy markets and, um, the, you know, frankly, the shock of this invasion 
it's a bigger issue in the European, um, both psychology and the data. And I think whether we get resolution of that or how that develops, um, it's kind of disappeared from the headlines a little bit, but it's, it's, it's a bigger issue than, than, may, than maybe we all appreciate and the implications of that. And then the other is, is the crypto markets. And here, um, not, again, not sure it's hidden, but I think we're already starting to see some of these, um, you know, uh, stable coins and things like that and unwinds. And the wealth impact from crypto and now the wealth destruction, and particularly in some structures that appear leveraged, I, I, I don't know how big it is or what the, the, the macro imp implication can be, but there are certainly um, rhymes with previous um, shadow banking types of experiences, and I, I think it's probably going to be a lot less. But that's something that I think maybe um, maybe we'll find out a year or two years from now. It had a bigger macro impact than we appreciate at the moment. Seems to be hiding in plain sight, as it were. Yeah, yeah. I guess like probably like a lot of things, you know, sometimes it, it's got to beat you over the head. But, you know, once it does enough times, you, you pay attention. Right. So, Ben, Ian wants to know about Bank of America. When is it reporting and, and will it, will the bank see upside with rising rates? Um, so it reports um, a week from today. Um, it's actually gotten hit a little bit harder than some of the others. It's down about 29 percent this year, but it's trying to find a bottom right now. Uh, rising rates is definitely uh, good for the for the stock. Um, but it also faces those same kind of headwinds. Um, Barron's does like it both as a stock uh, and also uh, its CEO, uh, Brian Moynihan, who um, made the uh, the list of uh, best CEOs in our most recent issue. I mean, I think with uh, Bank of America, we're going to actually get a lot of information this week before it reports. And depending on how it responds to the other banks, um, you know, we might have a good feel for what it's, how it will respond um, when it reports uh, a week from today. Good point. Ian also asked if you have thoughts about UAL, United Airlines. Um, you know, again, it's one of these these stocks where it's uh, it, 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 the sector has so many issues. The sector issues are so big that it's hard to really get into the nitty gritty of the company. Um, so I think it's, it's one where they're just, uh, people want to know with the, with all the airlines, just, uh, you know, we're getting this, uh, you know, th this burst of travel from, from people now that they couldn't do before. And, and I think just people are wondering what comes next, you know, can you sustain some normal levels? Can international come back? Well, business travel comes back. And that's what people are going to be listening to in all the airline calls. Business travel is a big question. Yes, it is. So let's close with a look at the economy. We've got some important data coming out this week. We're going to get inflation reports, PPI and CPI later in the week. And we're going to get jobless claims on Thursday, which people ought to start paying attention to. This is a leading indicator. So, Ben, take us through the CPI and PPI estimates. Sure. Um, so we're getting, uh, you know, CPI is supposed to come in around 1.1%, um, uh, which would be a uh, that this is month over month, which would be a tick higher than it was um, in in, um, in the previous month. Um, core is supposed to rise 0.6%, which would be flat uh, month over month. And PPI is supposed to be up to 0.9%. So basically that says right now inflation is still 
kind of is still an issue. Um, and, and, but, you know, these numbers, again, are backwards looking. I mean, the Fed is responding to them. Um, but we talked, uh, Ashok talked a little bit about these sentiment numbers. Um, you know, how, how do people feel about inflation? Um, and are the uh, expectations getting kind of unmoored? And that's we're going to get a little more information of when the uh, University of Michigan uh, releases its consumer sentiment index on, on Friday. So that's, I think that this is going to be where the big inflation stuff is. It's like, what are the numbers saying themselves? You know, is it going to be hotter than expected or weaker than expected? But also, how are people reacting to it? Are they starting to think, okay, the Fed can get inflation under control? Or do they still think the Fed's nowhere near getting it under control? And that could have a big impact as well. I should have asked Ashok, why does he think inflation is coming down to 4% or so? Uh, yeah, you know, we think um, core inflation, which is say six and a half percent right now, year over year, is going to end this year around five percent. So still well above Fed's target. Um, and then, you know, by the end of next year, we think it'll be, you know, somewhere with, um, you know, low three percent types of rates, which, um, you know, it, it's it's set and it's really related to how we think housing prices and such flow through into the data. It's sh it's shaping up for a much bigger fall late this year or early next year than than over the coming quarter, say. Okay, and last question. I'm going to give it to Steve, who just wrote it in. It's a good one. What are you expecting in terms of upcoming earnings season? People have talked about companies needing to lower their earnings guidance. We've talked about that in Barron's a bit too. Then, thirty seconds. What's the outlook for earnings? You take 60. I, I, I have to say that I think they're going to be pretty lousy. Um, it, it, maybe not the earnings themselves, but the expectations. But I also have to wonder how much of this has started to get priced into the market because it, it seems like everywhere I, I, I turn, I'm reading about how bad the earnings are going to be and you know how terrible they're going to be, particularly in tech. Um, but then you look at some of these stocks and how beaten up they've gotten. But I also think, you know, that's we, we had a little bit of a rebound in tech and, and things like that over the past week or so. And maybe that's why we're getting a little weakness right now is that people are saying, OK, wait a minute. Uh, we have these earnings coming. Um, are they really going to they might be as bad as people talked about. But that's what I really am going to focus on. It's like I, I think a lot of these stocks have priced in just a ton of bad news. And so we'll have to wait and see um, whether that's the case. Good point. There's earnings and what, and then there's what the market is expecting. So we'll yep. leave it at that. I want to thank you, Ben. Thank you so much, Ashok, for joining us today. Great thank conversation. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, Peter Lazaroff, Chief Investment Officer at PlanCorp, which manages over $5 billion of client assets, will speak with Barron Senior Writer Lauren Foster about ways to protect your portfolio during a bear market should be interesting. Thanks again, everybody. Good call. We appreciate your listening. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.